a huge nerd with anything that was related to science. And I ran across uh, the Hubble Deep Field image of 10,000 galaxies, and it completely changed my perspective. And I found an astronomy club in my hometown in Marvelsville, and so I joined it at a star party that I accidentally ran across. I think I was about 13, and I was the only youth member at the time. If we want to evolve as a civilization, we need to expand our knowledge. And with you know crafts like this, it, it, it's changed the world. And, and imagine what you know James Webb will do, and the one after that. Abigail Bolenbach, a student, science communicator, and astronomy club organizer who got the astronomy bug early in life and tells us her story of how she got turned on to astronomy as well as some of the projects that she's working on. We also take some time to talk a little bit about the Cassini mission to Saturn. She's also the host of the Astronomy Magazine video series, Infinity and Beyond. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. We've uh, we've been talking about this Abigail for a long time, so welcome, but welcome. We're finally making Thank time you. for this. We're, yes, this welcome, Abigail. Fun. Okay, is it Abby or Abigail? Which one? Uh, Which well, one? you can call me Abby. Abby's totally fine, but if you want to call me Abby Normal, that's okay too. <laughs> okay, Abby Normal. <laughs> so I was I'm really glad to have you here because there's so much that you're involved in that I think our, our listeners would like to learn a little bit about. So you are a science communicator. You uh, you're an uh, an ambassador for um, uh, you know telescope companies and and uh, you do a lot of science outreach and things like that. You're also a host of a video series called infinity and beyond, uh, which I guess is uh, something Astronomy Magazine is putting out. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. So where would you want me to start? Um, do you at, the to start at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> so at the big bang of it all. So That's kind right. of how the little uh, seed of interest that I have for astronomy um, kind of was planted into my psyche uh, was just from one image. And it was kind of like a butterfly effect in a sense because um, I was, uh, and still am, I, speaking in past tense, <laughs> <laughs> a, a huge nerd with anything that was related to science. And uh, I got any National Geographic magazines that I could get my hands on. And so I had like three or four sitting on my front doorstep. Um, and I'd like scurry out whenever I'd hear the mailman drop them on my, my porch. And I'd you know, come in and read for like four or five hours just on, the, on, the, on my carpet. And I ran across uh, the Hubble Deep Field image of 10,000 galaxies. And it completely changed my perspective and uh, basically path for life. I knew immediately that that's what I, I wanted to do. I was instantaneously hooked. At 10 years old, I knew that that's wow. what I needed to do, what I was meant for, and thus blossomed my love for astronomy. And uh, before that, I was onto dinosaurs. So I wanted to be um, a paleontologist. And they just went away. They were like an afterthought. They were my ex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dinosaurs are definitely astronomy. past tense. 
Yeah. So, so at the uh, ripe old age of 10, I did anything I could possibly, you know, get my hands on that was astronomy related in space. And, um, of course, wore my enthusiasm. So I had like got this whole new wardrobe with space related clothes and I looked like a, a total freak show. Um, <laughs> but, um, an enthusiastic one though. And I found an astronomy club in my hometown in Marvelsville. And so I joined it at a star party that I accidentally ran across. I think I was about 13 and I was the only youth member at the time. So I immediately got involved in any educational public outreach with them. I proceeded to assist with anything I could at public star parties, volunteering with other club members, you know, helping other children because children relate better with each other, view through telescopes, and even safely looking at sunspots. Um, but I think without, within about a year of joining, um, I actually started as a presenter for the Bartlesville Astronomical Society. So I wanted to get over my fear of public speaking because I knew that one day I was going to be running NASA and I needed to start early. And so <laughs> <Yes>. I, <laughs> I decided, okay, well, I got to start now. It's going to be a long run. Uh, might as well get over this fear. So I started providing monthly summaries of current astronomy news. And of course, later larger topics, you know, like such as like famous rocket crashes or how to make an astrophotography tracking map, biologies of different types of stars, different constellations, and and more and more. And of course, my uh, baby, the Cassini-Huygen legacy, which we'll be talking about uh, later on. So I just kind of threw myself into this and learned as I was going. It wasn't like I read an instruction book. And so I made mistakes and, and grew. Um, but after about five years of, of doing my little news segments, I became more comfortable with, you know, the knowledge that I was acquiring and I retained that information and I was able to give it to people in a better sense. And I wanted to give it to kids. I wanted to share my passion and knowledge with other kids that might be interested in astronomy and just make it more accessible. So um, uh, I think oh, it was in 2016, uh, whenever my uh, mentor and I organized the Barshan Youth Astronomers. So uh, I think in, we've got around 40,000 people in Bartlesville. We formed the first non-school affiliated youth astronomy club in the country, as far Is as we can right? find still to this day. Yeah. So wow. it's its own thing. It's crazy. This just goes to show we need more exposure to science and, and space for everyone, including kids. But um, we started uh, outlining everything the sky was was the limit basically and 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 beyond of course with different projects and workshops and uh everything like that but we had our, our first meeting in 2016 and it grew to about um i want to say like we have 25 members now 25 or 30 so and a lot of them are actually homeschoolers what's the age range there very young, which is wonderful. Starting that yeah. exposure uh, at an earlier age, we I think our average age is about uh, I want to say nine to eleven. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think our youngest yeah, one is wow. four or five, and they're not even an official member. They they just uh, are accompanying their older siblings, and he actually knows Cassiopeia. He can spell it. He can point out in the sky <laughs> to me. It's his favorite. It's phenomenal yeah it is it is important to get the you know the kids involved and we see that on the the imaging side as well i mean more and more i'm being blown away by kids that are 10 11 12 years old 
taking these images that you would think that, you know, it's people that have been doing this 20 years and posting some of the best stuff I'm seeing to Instagram and other outlets. Um, and so on both sides of it, not just, you know, the hobbyist astro imaging side, but also the science side and getting kids involved. I do think it's important. I mean, you said you were, you were into dinosaurs, you know, their, their story probably would have worked out a little differently if they had gotten their kids involved in astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get enough science education. Year. Yeah, their near Earth <laughs> object program was garbage. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, man. They did not look up enough for sure. Yeah, the dinosaurs <laughs> sucked at astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well. So Bartlesville is in Oklahoma, right? Yeah. Uh, what are What are the skies out like out there? Are they Are you wide open spaces kind of place, or is it a big city? What What kind of skies do you guys have out there? So Bartlesville is a smaller town and we've got some outskirts. So there is a place uh, near Pahaska where we do some viewing and as groups uh, that all the members will get together. And then there's a couple other little places around the outskirts of town uh, where the, some members live. And it's uh, a darker site um, where we'll kind of have like little star parties. But we generally uh, congregate at some of our state parks too. So we've got Osage Hills State Park and we've got a, a, a Washashi uh, Cherokee Park. And it's, uh, a wonder, it's been a wonderful place for uh, viewing and imaging. It's a lot darker than uh, all of the light pollution around our, our town. But otherwise, that's about as far as we journey from Bartlesville as a group on a regular basis. Yeah, out in, out in the Western Plains, uh, it can be quite uh, amazing, really nice dark skies out there. So I was just curious about that. Now, the uh, you're a little kid. When you first go there, you're, you're excited about astronomy. You're going to an astro astronomy club that you've uh, never gone before. How gone to before how were you received there? What was the uh, what was the welcome like or uh, what, what was your impression of that grouping? Of okay, so I love my group now and they love me they have grown to to love me i forced them oh that doesn't at, sound right they grew at to first <laughs> it wasn't a very uh inviting and warm relationship with with this astronomy club because i was so young i just seemed probably to them being veteran you know uh, physicists and mathematicians and engineers that were uh, doing their hobby, I was invading their, you know, relaxation because I wanted to know. I was curious. I was an annoyance, and I pestered because I wanted to acquire more knowledge, and I asked too many questions. But I was also a girl, and there were only two other women in the club, and one was this uh, secretary, I do believe, and the other one I thought was one of the wives for the longest time, but then she just, she liked to look through binoculars, and so she I was a club member. Uh, there were a couple other women that joined after that, but out of, you know, like 50 members, it was mostly men and I was like the only kid. And so my, uh, my mentor reached out to me after I, you know, persisted and been there for about a year and knew that I was steadfast in doing this and I wasn't giving up. I obviously wasn't going away. And so <laughs> I was committed. So he was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, we can go ahead and, I'll help you. <laughs> and he was uh, very helpful and helped kind of encourage my uh, love and passion for it and kind of put me under his wing, which really, if he hadn't done that, uh, that 
little bit of encouragement. I, I it could have just you know sweltered my whole little you know bonfire love for astronomy. Uh, that flame could have just been put out because they weren't very open. It was a very uh, exclusive group. So after I'd been there for about two years, and mind you, I've been presenting now for about a year. And I'd gotten up there in front of a crowd that did not want to hear what I had to say because I was this little shrimp. And how could I know, uh, you know, all the stuff that I was I was talking about? And they finally kind of respected my uh, resilience and tenacity, and they started enjoying some of it. And then that that little group, the safe group circle that supported me turned into about 10 people and then 12 and then about 15. And then after I'd been there for about three years, they're like, oh, wow, she's pretty sharp. And <laughs> then everybody kind of became an Abby fan. And I really appreciated that. I don't hold it against them uh, because the majority of people that I've ran into, into this uh, field, they're very um, like Spock-like logical personalities. So they don't, uh, appreciate uh, personal interactions and they think it's pointless or whatever. Uh, but for a child, it's imperative. And uh, I just, I'm thankful that I am stubborn headed enough <laughs> and I got through it. But I now. Spock like I personality type. That's a first. That's a first. But you're, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that is a great story. I mean, uh, good and kudos to both you and your mentor. I want to hear a little bit about him or her. Tell us about your mentor, because, you know, that would have been a tragic story had that person not been there, it sounds like. And Dustin and I talk about this a lot on this podcast about how astronomy clubs, you want to tell people to go to them, but they're not always the yeah. friendliest places to go. And I call them harumphers. Um, <laughs> and they, they just, they just, you know, well, you know, this is, you know, harumph, harumph, harumph. With everything new that tries to happen in their club, they want things the way they want them. And they don't want anything to change. No so, change. I mean, tell can you tell us a little bit about the role your mentor played and, and just how important it was to you, not just for this astronomy club, but it sounds like it, it uh, your mentor's gotten you into other uh, avenues as well. Well, he was uh, an amazing person, um, but we all kind of outgrow our roles in whatever he was. He was like the key stepping stone for me to understand that I was capable of doing this, that it was a field that I could do and that it was possible for me to do. And he opened my eyes for that and helped me so much along the way, building many, many different things, helping me observe. And I gained more mentors after him um, in the group and outside of the group that helped me too. But um, sadly, uh, an, an, one of my beginning mentors like you see a lot in, in college, whenever a student outshines the other mentor, um, it was not a very uh, healthy position. They actually discour discouraged my uh, uh, love and interest in pursuing astronomy and suggested that I just go into piano. I'm also a, a pianist. And they said, well, you know, there's not many, there's not many jobs in this field. You should really seriously consider. Are you serious? They said there's yeah. not many jobs in astronomy. Yeah, and wow. I, I was, I, you know, he knew that I wanted to go into astrophysics or any, yeah. you know, uh, cosmology-related field that I was, you know, accepted into, and I, I do piano to kind of escape. 
really. And that's kind of <laughs> a, a funny way to look at it because reading music is very stressful. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. But I've been doing it for, you know, 12, 13 years now. So it's, it's gotten easier ish, but it, it is, it's my, it's my avenue to just kind of escape the world and relax, but I don't want to do it as a profession. And whenever you look up to someone, uh, that type of discouragement, whether, you know, at the time it was meant to be, uh, extraordinarily damaging or not, it, it still was. And those unintended consequences sometimes can be fatal to, uh, a child's spark. And luckily mine was not because I am tenacious and very stubborn. No kidding. It sounds like you've overcome a lot, just a, a lot of negative reactions just to get where you are now. So good for you. Okay. So uh, let's, let's transition a little bit now to you. You've, you've made the, you've gotten introduced with your local astronomy club and you've been, you know, been presenting there. You've got to obviously got a passion for astronomy and space, but you seem to have a special affinity for, Saturn and the Cassini mission. Do you want yes. to talk a little bit about first why you have that passion and then tell us a little bit about the Cassini mission? So sadly, why I was obsessed with Saturn was before yeah. I got interested into astronomy and I was into astrology. Um, and I regrettably have to say that that's what uh, actually originated my love for Saturn because I am a Capricorn and it was my planet. And wow. therefore I connected with it and loved uh, anything, uh, any random factoids about Saturn. And I just always felt that it was kind of my, my pet planet. I'd always go to Saturn if I was bored or anything like that. And then whenever, of course, I saw the light and was enlightened um, and uh, came to the, to the light side, I, I left the dark side and went to astronomy. Um, I uh, appreciated Saturn much more. And when I had the opportunity to speak at Miserable, the Mid-States Astronomical uh, Region, um, and in 2018, uh, someone came and saw one of my talks here in, Bar here in Bartlesville at my club and wanted me to present there. And she was a fantastic mentor and helped me get many, many places. And so I was really, really nervous and I didn't know what to talk about, but I had done uh, a Cassini Huygens legacy uh, presentation for my club. And so I, I just flushed it out and practiced and practiced. And as I kind of immersed myself in this kind of Saturn therapy, if you must call it, I just discovered I was totally obsessed. And um, I uh, presented this uh, presentation at the Miserable, and then I presented it also uh, several other places, but I actually did a, a, a lecture on it in the Tulsa Astronomy Club at the planetarium there. And I uh, collaborated with the planetarium director, uh, Dan Zelensky. He uh, is wow, just a, a great man. And that was such a wonderful experience because he wanted to create a planetarium show with me. And so a year later, it debuted. It's wonderful. It, it was a such a cool learning process to work with the equipment behind the scenes and see how uh, to, to actually do a planetarium show, let alone the process. It was great, but I had to crunch down, you know, this like hour and a half lecture into uh, kind of a, a 20 to 30 minute presentation uh, up on, on a dome. And it was, it was really, really great. So 
uh, to just kind of put myself out there. If you guys want to go see after the pandemic uh, from earth to Saturn is what the planetarium show is named. And what's the name of the, and it's what, what was the planetarium again? The Jinx planetarium. That has a special part in my heart because I cut my teeth on planetary. I grew up in a similar situation, and, and I spent a lot of time in a school district planetarium in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I got to work at Fisk Planetarium there as well as uh, the Tombaugh Planetarium down in New Mexico. And I I just love being under a dome, uh, both telescopic and you know <laughs> uh, uh, planetarium dome. Uh, so I definitely have an affinity for that story. That's a, that's great. So. Um, so what so what is it uh, what did Cassini do for us then what is uh, when is uh, tell us a little bit about the mission to uh, the mission yeah this to is Saturn. always my favorite part because like I don't you know they they call it astro imaging right but really it should be imaging astro because all all we really end up talking about is photography and the tools to yeah. do photography but the astro piece of it comes secondary in most conversations if you look at the yeah. forums you'll you'll find that this is that piece comes secondary so even if you're taking pictures of saturn you're not talking about saturn you're talking about how do i get the sharpest image of this object so I always like this part in our podcast where I get to learn something new about the astro side of it because it's not typically part, it's not the leading part of the conversations in astro imaging. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about Cassini then. So first, uh, just kind of the true legacy of Cassini really lives in the mountains of data that scientists are going to be studying for decades to come. There was actually 2.5 million commands executed over 600 gigabytes of science data collected. Uh, I think there was almost 300 Saturn orbits. There were over 150 targeted moon flybys. Almost 500,000 images were taken. There were almost 200 main engine burns. I mean, we discovered uh, two oceans on Titan and Enceladus. Uh, hundreds of small lakes were discovered. It, they're just, it was a phenomenal mission. We had the four-year primary mission, the two extended missions, the Equinox mission from 2008 to 2010, and then the Solstice mission from 2010 to 2017. It was just an extraordinary endeavor, and I have only covered uh, and, and, and touched on a small fraction throughout my uh, lust for learning more about it. Really, though, um, I... I don't even know where to start. So what about these oceans? I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were two oceans discovered on um, on Titan. What are these oceans of? So the oceans are actually, um, I do believe, methane. So there's, uh, there's propane lakes, there's liquid hydrocarbon, ethane, methane, uh, uh, lakes on there, but there's also vents of cryovolcanoes. So Tony, it, so Titan would be like a no smoking zone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And very stinky too. It'd be very, yeah. very, yes. it would not be a place you'd want to like get fresh air at all. No, um, you don't go surfing yeah. in those oceans. But, but one of the great things about the Cassini mission is that it coupled with it was a lander that went down on Titan, uh, descended uh, onto the surface and through the atmosphere, uh, the Huygens probe. And, yes. uh, as it descended, it took some images, um, and I think some video, but, uh, there it were did. definitely some some clear images of the, it did it was near the xanadu region um actually it was the first landing on a moon other than our own which is just extraordinary to think of really 
but it actually parachuted down uh, onto land, although the possibility that it would touch down in an ocean was also taken into account in its design. But the probe was designed to gather data for a few hours in the atmosphere and possibly a short time at the surface, which it did. Uh, but it actually can continued to send data for about 90 minutes after touchdown. So it exceeded our expectations of it. Measurements of the winds were possible by studying how the molecules present in the moon's atmosphere moved. This was actually achieved by the faint infrared light that they emit. So what uh, Huygens traveled through was actually Titan's alien nitrogen atmosphere. Um, and based on computer modeling of, of the atmosphere and based on the winds, it revealed that its system was like a giant conveyor belt circulating the wind from north to south and south to north. And in images, we see that Titan has a hazy, thick atmosphere, uh, but Huygens being there, you know, of course, found it to be even hazier than expected due to the presence of aerosols or dust particles. Um, but actually, one thing that was really cool is scientists were surprised to find that two noble gases, xenon and krypton, were not found at all. There was no signs of them. But measurements of the atmosphere confirmed that the complex organic compounds, the building blocks of amino acids necessary for life, were present in both gas and solid phases, which was one of the main keys why we uh, released Huygens there. But despite the uh, atmospheric haze that on board, uh, the, the cameras on board, the Huygens probe, you know, experienced, they were able to take clear images of Titan's surface. And the first image of the surface showed a world that really resembled Earth in many ways, with evidence that liquid methane had flowed on the surface, causing erosion. It, weather, uh, it, it measured, I think, weather conditions at the surface of temperatures of like minus 170 degrees Celsius. And uh, it, it only had about an atmospheric pressure slightly higher than Earth's. But the video was epic watching it come down because it was clear, it was beautiful, there was no glitching. Ah, oh, what I would have been to, to, have, to have seen that live, it would have been phenomenal. Yeah, I'm sitting here trying to re remember what the temperature was on Titan. Do you have that? Do you know what that is off the top of your head? Um, what, what the average uh, temperature on the surface is? Yeah, it's, it, 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 it's a, a minus, minus 170 degrees Celsius. Okay, so that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty yeah. cold. So, cold. yeah. <laughs> uh, so there are, there are some pluses and minuses here for um, life. Uh, you mentioned the building blocks for the amino acids, and then there's, which themselves are building blocks of right. organic, complex organic uh, molecules. So life, while... I don't know, improbable, certainly might uh, have arisen, might arise uh, on Titan. Um, any idea, uh, what do you think about that? Do you think there there might be at least some simple organisms down there? Uh, well, they actually have hope that there is because aren't they sending Dragonfly to Titan? Yes, they are. That's Dragonfly right, yeah. is this awesome quadcopter that they're sending <laughs> <laughs> out to Titan. Yeah. talking about this quadcopter. Man. Hey, dude, oh, come on. <laughs> now, no, it's I, already I it's awesome. I don't understand why. So maybe you guys can explain this to me, but why Titan over something like Europa? Why, do, why are we so invested already in Titan before being 
invested in something like Europa. Europa seems to make a ton of sense. I'm not sure we are more invested in Titan. I think if yeah, we think, had to I look think it's at, an at even a, distribution of love between the two because they're sending are they they're, well they're figuring out the technology right now so that well, they don't <clears throat> damage the surface uh, and if there is life uh, trying to find it on Europa because they've got to do a submarine and right now they were thinking of lasering down um, or dropping a uh, a, a semi-type explosive, which to me just seems really detrimental. But well, even even if it's not Europa, just anything. I mean, it's such a big gap. You just said, you know, the second place we ever landed something after the moon, or landed on another moon after ours, was Titan. Titan's a long way away. Why mm-hmm. why is Titan chosen as the primary target for something like that? To I mean, you got a lot. You got to pass a lot of other moons, you know, on your way. To get there, why is Titan chosen over everything? Because it's a Titan. It rules. Um, (laughs) I don't know, actually, particularly that question, because I'm sadly not sitting in the desk at NASA making those decisions. Um, (laughs) I think just because it has uh, such a uh, such dynamic to it and uh, likelihood that there is or was possible life on just like just like Europa and also Enceladus which to me, I really, 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 really want them. And I think, I'm not sure specifically right now, um, but uh, they were going to send something to Enceladus. Uh, because beneath well, the icy shells still... of Enceladus, scientists believe that oceanic hydrothermal vents must exist. And if those do exist, then that means that there could be life. Um, if there was, uh, with, with the Doppler effect, and everything else combined with that moon, it's like a perfect harbor for, you know, ancient sea creatures, which to me just just shows more and more evidence suggesting a habitable ocean. I ugh, I, I want there so badly to be a mission going there first, um, but I'm, I'm just particularly biased. Well, that was, yeah, just to uh, fill that out, uh, you know, follow up on that, you know, one, one of the reasons we were so interested in Titan to begin with going out there was, that we knew a priori that that was a moon that had an atmosphere. And so we definitely wanted to check that out. One of the things Cassini taught us that we did not know prior to going there was what Enceladus was actually like. I mean, they flew through water plumes and they did not expect that. That was a huge surprise. So then all of a sudden after Cassini arrived, Enceladus became, whoa, we got to check this out. (laughs) And so now there is a lot of intense interest. Uh, I'm not saying it's going away from Titan because we're sending Dragonfly there, but Enceladus is a big target as well, especially um, as Abby points out, uh, we want to get the, uh, you know, these, these water plumes figured out the, the uh, subsurface oceans, if there are any. uh, Yeah. Well, to to actually expand on that, um, there's, Four huge ice fissures called tiger stripes and Enceladus. And what that is, is jets of salty water and ice shoot from over a hundred geysers in these ice cracks from an underground ocean beneath the icy crust of Enceladus. And these uh, geysers shoot out at approximately 800 miles per hour, creating the uh, hazy earring for Saturn. And uh, some of the material falls back into Enceladus and some extend hundreds of miles into space like I said, to form the ring. But uh, Cassini flew through this and nanoparticles of silica were detected in the icy droplets of the E-ring. And, uh, you know, silica can only be generated when rock and liquid water interact at temperatures higher than 90 degrees Celsius. So that also points, you know, 
there's there's just there's got to be something there underneath. I don't know that we have any missions currently slated to go to um, Enceladus. I mean, I know, I know that's that with why Dragonfly I, and then the Europa Clipper, those two were on the on the books, but I don't know if there's anything that's been a, approved yet to go to Enceladus. But like you say, Dustin, it's it's far. That's a long way to go. So it is. Um, so I hope we can uh, we can get some more uh, stuff out there. So do you have a what's your favorite? Um, maybe that. Let me not ask it that way. I want to. I want to know what you, the biggest surprises that you think that came out of the Cassini mission. One of them, I think, um, was Enceladus. I think that was a big surprise. But when? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think were the biggest? Uh, I think. Well, okay. So I can. Hmm, I can. I can uh, give you a couple things. So the first thing that I think was so so cool was the royal crown. Um, the hexagon, hexagon. That's a good strings. cola, man. I love RC. <laughs> Sorry. Crown Royal. Yeah. Um, the, the hexagon at the North Pole uh, was first revealed by the Voyager mission in the early 80s, but Cassini observed this behemoth storm during Saturn's winter uh, when it was in shadow, and it uh, discovered that it was 20,000 miles across with wind speeds reaching 200 to 300 miles per hour. So each of the clouds six sides is about 8,600 miles long. That is longer than the diameter of the earth at almost 8,000. It's like 7,900 and change. But this storm could just swallow up earth and we, we didn't really understand how big it was. So that's my, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, would probably be uh, the storm cycles. So the 30-year storm cycle um, actually serendipitously appeared uh, 10 Earth years early. So basically the phenomenon roared for two-thirds of an Earth year and wrapped 2,000, 200,000 miles around Saturn. And basically what it is, is um, it's everything coming up from the depths of Saturn up to the top, kind of having a hissy fit. Uh, uh, if you could just imagine uh, us excreting our toxins through, uh, you know, acne in a sense is the same way that uh, Saturn does this with its 30 year storm cycle. And, but, but for Saturn, it's uh, like an annual occurrence because uh, the long, I think 29.5 earth years uh, is, is one Saturn year. Um, this, this season, if you must, would be like seven earth years long. So just imagine going through your hormonal stage for seven years. That sounds miserable, (laughs) but also from that, we get the lightning and, oh, I love the lightning. It's so cool. They finally kind of heard it. The, uh, Cassini's sensors, uh, heard it in the form of radio waves, but, uh, finally, uh, Finally, cameras actually captured the image of Saturnian lightning for the first time with Cassini, and there, it's just absolutely monstrous. And uh, the ending of the mission was pretty spectacular too. The way it was, the way that they. I mean, one of the things I love about NASA, you, we I often talk a lot of crap about NASA, but it does a lot of amazing <laughs> things too. And and one of the you know one of the things that I am constantly amazed with. I mean, I'm one of the reasons I'm skeptical is I'm following James Webb Space Telescope and I'm just waiting if that, that thing is ever going to get launched. Uh, but when <laughs> missions do get launched and when they do get deployed, they tend to get way more than their money's worth out of these things. Yeah, that's and true. certainly yeah. Cassini. Yeah. And yeah. And so Cassini certainly uh, filled the bill when even 
to the point of how they were going to crash it uh, into the sur- or into the uh, planet. They it, they 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 wanted to have data all the way up until the very end, and so right. they sent this thing. Describe for us a little bit about the ending of this of the uh, Cassini mission. Sure. It was- so it was kind of like the final frontier. So the final mission actually concluded with a five month grand final phase, and that's that's the official title. So there were actually 22 deep dives between Saturn's clouds and innermost rings. And uh, there was an image that was taken called the Mosaic, and it was named the most ridiculous and absurd name I've ever heard. I'm still insulted for Cassini. It was called the Noodle. Imagine (laughs) the last image that you took was called a noodle. That just kills it for me. But anyway, uh, Cassini did capture uh, the dive and uh, it was very sad, but uh, uh, noble in in a sense. But for the final dive uh, for on September 15th in 2017, operators actually deliberately plunged the spacecraft into Saturn. uh, And like you said, Cassini gathered science until the very end and was such a team player. Uh, But Cassini kept the spacecraft antenna pointed at Earth to send as much data as possible. And they didn't actually intend uh, for this to happen, but they programmed it on the fly, uh, which that to me is like uh, phenomenal freestyle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We need to to do this. We didn't think about that. Yeah, that's another kudos to NASA. Yeah. Yeah. The plunge actually ensures... Um, Saturn's moons will remain pristine for future exploration, uncontaminated by hitchhiking microbes from Earth, which is really important because why would, I mean, if we actually manage to get our butts out there onto a moon and see that our life has evolved with something else, I think that would be a very scary and uncomfortable situation. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because why they did it was pretty important. Uh, they yes. wanted to make sure it didn't contaminate the the area with accidentally crashing into something else once they lost control of it. They did the same thing with Galileo and Jupiter, yep. uh, where they got rid of it that way as well. So, um, but but Galileo had a lot more. Uh, um, it was hampered a lot more than, than Cassini was uh, technically because of its uh, had problem with the uh, dish antenna. So they weren't able to do with Galileo what they ended up doing with Cassini. And it was spectacular. You're right. It was, it was an amazing ending to an amazing mission. I mean, that thing was up there for a long time. Yeah. And we're still, as you pointed out at the top, you know, we're, they're still going to be going through this data. How many gigabytes? I mean, 600 or 800 gigabytes of data. Yeah. Over 600 so, gigabytes. That's a lot of stuff to pour through, so there's still a lot more to learn. And so many of NASA's missions are like this. Kepler, same thing. Kepler missions still giving oh, yeah. data that they they are still discovering planets from that freaking thing. So, and it it was it's been off now for uh, I think three years. So it's, yep. they're still going through that stuff. Um, wow. Yeah, well, the, okay. The historic Cassini mission was really an adventure full of unprecedented discoveries. And like, you know, like you said, while the mission is complete, its enormous body of data will continue to rewrite textbooks for decades to come. And what I always tell people is the Cassini orbiter should not be thought of as simply a sophisticated collection of propulsion mechanisms, sensors, and microprocessors. Scientists and engineers viewed this thing as their baby, and so so did I. Um, but they, they view such a craft as extensions of our limited human perceptions. And this is always one of my strongest arguments to people that uh, approach me with, well, we spend too much money on this and exploring space. We need to resolve our problems here on Earth. And I, yes, I do 
completely understand and agree that uh, our way <laughs> isn't exactly the best that we that we've been uh, doing this. But but still, we if we want to evolve as a civilization, we need to expand our knowledge. And with you know crafts like this, it, uh, I just it's going to change. It's changed the world, and and imagine what you know James Webb will do, and the one after that. Right. So just, I mean, just to, to to really drive that home, think about this for a second. The thing was up there for almost twenty full years. Yeah. Okay. So you're young. You're just starting out your career. A lot of a lot of NASA people working on the Cassini mission started their careers uh, on this mission, where they, because way before launch, which was I guess ninety seven. Way before that, 10 years prior, they start planning it, they start building it, designing it, and all of that stuff. So you're looking at 30 full years. That is a career, right? And, yeah. and yeah. imagine that you start with Cassini, and then you help all the way from the beginning, and then you see it launched, and then 20 years later, it crashes into the, uh, the planet to end its mission. I mean, that is the scale over which we're talking about here, and that, that you know, you yourself may be deciding where you're going to work. You said you were going to be involved in NASA. Let's say you get involved in a, a project that's just getting started out. The Hubble Space Telescope started in 1980 and is still going. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, it, you know, these are career moves uh, on this. And there's nothing, I think, uh, more, I mean, this hasn't happened very often, thank goodness. But when, you know, they blow up at launch or if, you know, oh, if yeah. the mission Never gets fails, off the pad. That, I mean, that's just, that's just tragic, I mean, right? When you're putting a decade into something, or in it's an entire career plan for a single project. Yeah, can you imagine yeah. watching that thing explode on the pad? Oh, I know. oh, I, the pain. I, it, no, I don't even want to. I need to. I need to go to therapy just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so Abby, and I want. I want to know how did how did all of this stuff lead to? Because clearly, like you have a fascination with this, you have a passion for this. You, uh, I would imagine, even when this podcast ends, you're still going to be talking about this. Like you love, you love this yes. conversation. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's how it is with all astronomy people. I feel like that's why we all get along so well. But how did all of that lead to, you know, now you're doing videos for astronomy magazine. Have you, you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So really why I kind of wanted to talk about Cassini today is because it really was what jump-started my journey. Um, because I, like I said, I, I did that presentation at the Mid-States Region Astronomical League Convention, and it was uh, at Explore Scientific. And Scott Roberts saw me, and uh, we became always Scott. wonderful friends. I love Scott so much, and he saw something in me and uh, supported me through uh, so much and uh, gave like, great encouragement. Um, and I am now uh, an Explore Scientific uh, Ambassador and absolutely love it and love working with him. But um, from that, I met so many people that were so loving and uh, encouraging and just thought I was really inspiring. And it was uh, kind of new energy that I was experiencing because I hadn't run into that before. It was like, oh, wow. So it's, it's like, okay, to be a space nerd, like, I'm not infringing on yeah. anyone's ego. Like you, right. it's okay, really? Oh, wow, cool. Okay, awesome. And uh, it, it just exploded from there with you know positivity and uh wonderful support from so many different people and uh 
I got the uh, Horkheimer's uh, Award, the uh, Astronomical League's Horkheimer Award in 2018 for my efforts in astronomy outreach. And then I, you know, I didn't stop. I, you know, did the solar glasses uh, program with um, Astronomers Without Borders and Sugar Creek Astronomical Club. Uh, I had my club sort through about uh, 50,000 glasses and we sent them uh to uh, South America to safely view the total solar eclipse that was in July 2019. Uh, that was a fantastic opportunity to participate in. Um, and then uh, in 2019, I was actually uh, se selected as one of 24 uh, young students worldwide to be recognized as part of the Mars Generation, second class of 24 under 24 leaders and innovators in STEAM, which I just, I totally freaked out when I found out I was part of that. Um, so, of course, STEAM is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Uh, but th those are the fields that are bringing the sciences to the public through you know, multidisciplinary interests. And then later, um, like I said, uh, Scott gave me the honor to be his uh, one, of, one of his Explore Alliance ambassadors. And I've spoken so many different places and gotten to meet so many awesome people, like at the Nebraska Star Party, um, and then uh, I went to the St. Louis Astronomical Society and talked about pulsars and quasars, uh, which became the new um, uh, uh, kind of soulmate. It, it took Saturn's place momentarily uh, and thus has blossomed my love for black holes. But um, I actually did uh, the pulsars and quasars talk uh, online for uh, Scott with the Explore Alliance ambassadors. Um, and uh, that's where David Eicher saw me with Astronomy Magazine. Oh, okay. And it's just, it's connections like that. They just cascade. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fantastic. And so in April, I did, like I said, an online uh, presentation. And um, I just talked really about, uh, you know, radio astronomy, some, some of the aspects of spectroscopy and the nature of uh, anatomy of quasars and pulsars and uh david messaged me afterwards and wanted to do an interview and i was like oh my god oh my god oh my god astronomy magazine contacted me this is so cool yeah. and i had my freak right. out moment and um after we met over uh, uh the online i think it was like a zoom interview meeting type thing it was with the other editors i came out with my own series with them and i just am still elated it's hard for me to believe that such a uh, serendipitous opportunity just uh came from that i'm still ecstatic but um that's just kind of basically where i'm at today just winging it and so many awesome people pushing me along and helping me push the envelope First, congratulations, because yes, it is, it's a huge opportunity, and I think a lot of people would trade places with you to <laughs> have that opportunity. So it is a huge opportunity. It's really cool, and I know it's developed you a following and is only going to continue to do that. And having people like uh, Scott Roberts in your corner, there's nothing wrong with that at all. I can tell you, no. you know, Scott and I, we try to have serious conversations too. It never happens. Not once. It's never happened. So congratulations on that as well, because if you've if you've achieved getting the serious conversation with Scott Roberts, you've done something. Something. Incredible. Thank you, Dustin. Yeah. But serious uh, conversations aren't very fun, and they don't. Uh, I mean, yeah. generally, the best conversations that I've had are are the creative ones. Serious. Yeah, well, that, I agree. That stagnates. 
dies. I agree. And that's why, you know, I think that between Tony and myself, we've probably spent seven, maybe eight lifetimes in astronomy clubs. You know, different clubs yeah. around yeah. the country, around the world. We've spent a lot of time in clubs. And let me tell you, like, you know, we started the conversation with this. But here's here's how I feel about the two different types of clubs that I see. And one that I very much appreciate and one that I always try to find somebody that's vulnerable within the club to start the revolution. Right? <laughs> um, and Viva so, revolution. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like you will change this club. <laughs> but, but it's like, here, here's what I see with two different types of clubs. You have the club that celebrates knowledge and then you have the other club that celebrates what do you think? And what I like about the what do you think clubs is it implies progress and it implies moving forward. When you're asking somebody, what do you think if? What you're saying is, where do we go next? What do we pursue? What are we going to challenge ourselves with? When all you do is celebrate and recycle the facts that you know, what you're saying is we're past the finish line looking back. And there's nowhere to go from there, but just to bicker and argue about who knows more. And those clubs are the ones that I think that when we talk about our frustration, those are the ones that it's just like you're not you're not challenging each other, you're not learning, you're not really doing anything, but just seeing who can say I know more instead of, you know, it doesn't matter if you know a lot, it doesn't matter if you're coming in and it's your first day talking astronomy. I think the most benefit comes to all of us as a community when you start asking the question, regardless of your foundational knowledge, what do oh, you I- think? Totally agree, Dustin. Um, I re- really, I, uh, I, I wish so many people could have that same perspective. Just because, for for me, learning, uh, it it was interesting looking back. Just because I was a newbie and and, and a kid at the same time, so people just uh, put me in the category of innocence and uh, being you know naive. But really. We can all learn, whether we're just starting or we've been in it for you know, 30, 40 years as a profession and it's gotten old and boring and you don't have the same invigorating feelings, uh, seeing you know your results pop up on the screen that you used to have, um, that either learning that passion and learning uh, and relearning the love and, and finding that, that same uh, umph that you used to have or learning from, from, from your elders. I think we all just need to, to, uh, kind of cultivate that more. <laughs> yeah. And I just think there, there's so much, it's such a more interesting conversation, even when it's conversations that I just clearly disagree with, you know, people, you know, we've, we've gotten a few, you guys were talking about before this thing started flat earth, you know, we, we get some of the stuff like that, um, <laughs> where people will say like, Hey, I think, the earth is flat and here's why. And it's always a more entertaining conversation to even hear something as absurd as that than the, hey, sit down. I'm about to unload everything I know on you. Right. And at the end of it, you can say, hey, cool story, man. You know, like, <laughs> cool story, bro. Yeah, cool story, man. You tell it again? You're going to tell yeah. it again? Like, that's cool. Um, yeah. yeah, I just don't think, and I think that there's so much of that here that's just like, I know this, I know this, I know this, let me dump this on you. And I see that a lot in clubs, not all clubs. I'm telling you, some clubs you walk in and it is a, what do you think conversation? And that is the way people really learn. And that's the way we're going to learn more. And that's really what science is. is about. It really is. There, there was a kid in my, my club that still inspires me to this day. 
he came up to me and asked me, he said, hey, do you want to know about the Oort cloud? And he's 10. I had no idea what the Oort cloud was when I was 10. And he proceeded to tell me all about it and wanted to know why and wanted to learn more about this. Now, at that point, I said, "We well, we need to start at the solar system. We need to start with planetary formation before we even begin Oort cloud. That could have squashed that. I mean, that's that's not okay. You need to go with what their 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 passion is telling you where, where they want to be. Like for me, I was the obnoxious, you know, um, info uh, sponge. I just wanted to know more and more and more. And so I honed down the uh, physics professor in my club and I told him that um, I knew that our star was in the May sequence state of, uh, of its life. And I wanted him to explain fusion to me because I knew what hydrostatic equilibrium was. And I knew that gravity is pulling the star inward and the light pressure from all the fusion reactions in the star are pushing outward. But I had no idea what fusion was and I wanted to know why. And thank God he just looked at me and I guess uh, admired <laughs> my pinpoint interest in that one thing and decided to help me on it. And he's like, oh wow, that's, that's really cool. Sure, I'll tell you about that. But if he would have just you know, laughed. He was like, huh, you need to know 101 physics before we cover <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. I mean, oh, you I don't s- know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, don't, don't even waste my time. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I mean, look, you, you guys, you guys are raising some really good points here, but the bottom line is this, this, how these personalities that we're talking about react to these kinds of questions is everything. I mean, you, you alluded to early Abby, that, that the, 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 these are, these are all Spock types, right? These are, you know, the personality types that get involved are of a very specific yeah. <laughs> kind and they generally don't tend to be very welcoming. And they are, they, you know, maybe the social skill department is a little bit low, but the, uh, the way in which that you respond to these kind of questions, like your physics professor, uh, that you approached, uh, is everything. And one of the reasons that I find, one of the things that I find very encouraging about what you've told us today is this story about, you've got this youth astronomy club one of the only in the in the country uh, that is the spark that is going to keep the uh the astronomy club at large going and the the churn rate of astronomy clubs tends to be zero right you get these yeah. g- 20 guys who get together maybe it's not even 20 maybe it's five they get together they start an astronomy club and they just sit around in a circle and talk to each other about their telescopes and then they're done for the day maybe if it's clear they'll go out <laughs> and, and, and observe uh and and that's the club meeting right and so uh, but someone else comes in and wants to ask about black holes, they just get annoyed. Well, you know, that that's that's sort of where this crustiness makes the astronomy club kind of, you know, an, an anachronism, right? Nobody wants to go to astronomy clubs yeah. anymore because of that. <laughs> Oh, so. and it's not, you can't say any, man. It's not any, you know, some, some of them are really, it's a good time. It's fun. And, oh, uh, it's not like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's not like that. Many, many are great. There are just, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to say all of them, but there, there are plenty of stories of what we're talking about uh, here. Where it, it's not just clubs, man. It's all, all groups. All groups have all those groups. groups. I, yeah. I totally Look at Facebook. agree with that. Look at Facebook. You post a photo of anything. Look, I'm the first one to tell you. I I cook the saturation on every image I have, and then I put it back in the oven and cook it again, you know, yeah. to make it as saturated as possible. 
it is offensive to people when they see it, you know, and Dude, not this just photo my... makes me mad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And everybody starts trying to define the line of that's not a photo. That's art. That's art. And it's just like, this is so upsetting to you. And it's hilarious to me that yeah. it's bothering you, you mad, bro? so much. It's like, where, where does this frustration come from? And well, why? It's the, it's the puritanical type, uh, stance it's, it's like that in everything like I was a ballerina um, almost my entire life and you had a specific clothing you had a specific you know hairdo and if you wore your hair in a certain way that just slightly deviated from the norm uh, then you were like chastised it was ridiculous and it's the same like in piano like there's certain songs yeah that you play for competitions and others aren't accepted and if you you know, go in there with a jazz piece god forbid i mean oh yeah, yeah. that's just a, what a scoundrel you know <laughs> yeah but i just like, love the like standards that. like these arbitrary standards that people come up with in their mind they're like well, did you touch the saturation slider for more than 300 milliseconds <laughs> if you did this yeah. is no longer a valid photo yeah <laughs> And, and I'm I report and you. You could just talk to the hand. I got reported to the Facebook community managers for supporting a guy that they had, you know, they had warned this guy is they considered this overprocessed. But, you know, people were beating up on a kid for this. It's just like, no, this is silly. This kid's photo is awesome. I'm jealous of it, as a matter of fact. It's better than anything I've ever taken. So this thing's awesome. And I'm going to say it's awesome. And people got so upset immediately that within 20 minutes of posting it, uh, the community uh, organizer or manager or whatever they are, they contact me. They're like, look, we're not going to take the post down, but we didn't want to tell you that like, it upset people that you posted this. And I just think it's so funny that yeah. people get upset about other people's creativity or their process with arbitrary guidelines that mean absolutely nothing. And these are the same people that will post a, bl a blurry picture of a light and then be like, hey, doesn't get more realistic than this. With my 2040 vision, this is what my the moon looks like. <laughs> 2040. You know, like, like oh, come gosh. on. What are these lines? Well, what are these I lines? That, I think not just in the sense of, of passions and, and different, you know, scientific and uh, creative outlets. That's taken... Uh, let's let's go back to you know like religion. Some people you know criticize and and judge others for uh, you know interpreting different Bibles and different uh, religious texts in their own sense to find God. And I, I think what the problem is is just ego. Period. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, and human nature. They just yeah. you, they, these two things. They just you know, whenever there's a chance of like-minded people to get together, uh, these rigid sort of thinking will just come out of it and calcify. And then next thing you know, you got to break through it. And it takes someone like yourself to go in and say, "Hey, I want to learn about all this cool stuff." And you break through the crustiness, and you've got a great community there now. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. They, uh, it's so great. We have after meetings now. We go get ice cream yeah, and we talk. And, and we you had never, to work to get there, though, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they because I suggested that like three years ago. And they're like, oh, nah. I need to go home. I need to go feed my dog. And like we have like 17 people go to Brahms now after our meetings after uh, at our at our ice cream shop. And they're like, oh, you go to Brahms? Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring this book. And I've got some of these photographs that I've been working on or be like, 
oh yeah, so I'm going to bring these oh, filters on awesome. your opinion. And that it's cool. invigorated them and it's fantastic to see because you can see the little child kind of coming out and peeking its head out after being kept in the closet for years and years and years of its, uh, you know, the, of the adult serious world. And now they can come out and kind of play again and, and see the light. It's, it's great. Uh. It's so funny that this is a thing, though. It's good that you broke through it. And I think that you're going to be able to do more yeah. and more of that. I think yeah. now that you, like, I'm sure as you see your following growing, you're probably getting a lot of uh, direct messages from people. I would imagine you're inspiring a lot of young people, um, and females yeah, especially, I, which is great, to get into this hobby and to pursue it as a passion. I, I have. It really has been such a, a fun process. And looking back, it's given me the chance to kind of review all of the projects and activities and astronomy over the past five years. It's given me pause, um, you know, once again, to sit kind of where I'm at and be grateful for all of the support from my parents, my mentors and my peers. And just that it, it kind of feeds it. Right. So you, you get a positive reaction and it kind of conditions you in a sense. You're like, Ooh, Ooh, I want to do that again. So you do even more and you're like, Ooh, they liked it. They want to know more. They want to learn. Let's do more. And it's, it's just great. The key is just kind of put yourself out there, volunteer over and over and over again, no matter how foolish or vulnerable you feel. I mean, heck, I still, I still get terrified talking in front of people, but I just kind of try to joke around and some people don't get my sarcasm. Some people get offended by it, but it kind of is my, my, uh, my crutch. <laughs> it helps me get through it. Uh, but really none of what has transpired would have been possible without you know, all of, all of my amazing people and their steadfast guidance and help and encouragement. And I just kind of want to be that for other girls, other kids, other people, uh, you know, no matter what age. Well, Abigail Bolenbach, thank you for being Abby Normal. I appreciate your t spending some time with us here on our podcast. Um, and yeah. The, and you guys, uh, it's been awesome talking to you. So Infinity and Beyond is your uh, latest podcast. Uh, video series it's out on the astronomy uh magazine's youtube channel so you guys need to listeners need to go check that out it's really good and uh anything else you want to let our listeners know about that you're up to abby um uh trying to stay sane during this pandemic if you guys have any tips let me know <laughs> yeah we all need those <laughs> okay. uh, better internet connection for all the zoom meetings that i'm involved in <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. So you'll be you'll be signing up for Starlink, I guess. When it's yeah, well, I mean, I, there's just so much going on. I work uh, with, you know, Astronomy Magazine now and I work at my chemistry lab and, you know, I'm going to try to juggle that with, uh, you know, astronomy and studying it in college, astrophysics and you know, hopefully obtaining a higher education and seeing how long Astronomy Magazine stays with me and has faith. But uh, any other endeavors that I can uh, kind of twist off and have fun with in between, I like like this. I love doing stuff like this. You guys have been great. I so appreciate uh, y'all listening to my um, <laughs> fun and funny experiences and your time and consideration. Hey, you're welcome anytime. Well, I hope you'll come back and uh, do another episode with us. I love that. That'd be awesome. Okay, great. Well, Abigail Bolenbach, uh, she's a she is a student science communicator 
and amateur astronomer all rolled up into one. I am excited to uh, watch you grow and, and, and see what you end up getting yourself involved in. Um, I wish you nothing but good things. So thank you for taking time out to join us here at Space Chunk Podcast. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Jump is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>